0: You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome to Redeemer Odessa. My name is Andrew Prado. Um, I was part of the core team that helped uh, start this uh, little movement of Redeemer Odessa, and just what a blessing to look out and see so many new faces and To know that we're growing, you know, spiritually and numerically, and I just I'm, I'm thank thank God, right? What a blessing it's been uh, to get started. So just welcome. This morning, uh, we're going to go through Galatians 2:11 through 21. So give you a little uh, time to go through in your Bible and find it again. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ then, a servant of sin, I'm sorry, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever.
0: Thank you, Andrew. I'm sorry I just came out from behind that curtain like I was making an entrance. <laughs> I realized how that probably looked. That was not my goal. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, good morning. <laughs> that was funny. Some of you saw me beforehand and you were laughing at me. I'm uncomfortable. I want to just start this day over. Okay. Uh, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Odessa. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. You uh, can find a Connect card under your chair, um, fill that out, take a minute, get that back to us, and uh, if you're on your phone, we have a new app, which is convenient because apparently we don't have a projector, Um, and so you can find like sermon notes and things on that app, and if you need a Bible, there is one on that app, or you can raise your hand. We have hard copies in the back, and if you don't have a Bible, you can keep that one. Um, That is yours to take with you, um, provided that you will use it and meditate on it and grow in faith. Um, just as a brief aside, uh, we don't have a projector this morning. I'm pretty sure the church existed for like 1,900 plus years without the use of a projector, so we're going to be okay. Okay. Um, we do have that app which has sermon notes on it if you want to use that. Um, and so that's available to you. It's just the Redeemer Church in your App Store, or if you're a weird Android user, whatever that place is called where you can get an app. So, anyways, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So, I'm just going to say one thing by way of review, and then we're just going get, to get moving. Last week we talked about this term legalism, um, we defined it as right behavior wrong belief. Today we're going to learn uh, a new term. Uh, It's called licentiousness. We're going to lean into this a little more. This is another dangerous position. Um, Licentiousness could be defined as right belief, wrong behavior. So that's like saying you believe one thing, and maybe you even feel sincere in saying it but then you are doing something the complete opposite of what you say you believe. So there's a lot in these 10 verses that Andrew just read, and and we're just going to walk through them together today. So as we're walking through this text this morning, I want to call you to consider a few things. If you claim to be a Christian, does your lifestyle reflect what you say you believe? If you claim to be a Christian, does your life look like you are a Christian? If you claim to be a Christian, are you trusting in yourself for salvation? And if you claim to be a Christian, are are you willing to be held accountable for the things of God? Are you willing to be held accountable for your sins and for your unbelief, for the Lord's glory and for your own good in Christ? And finally, I just, again, want to call us back to our identities in Christ. If you are a Christian, this text ought to function as a balm for your soul because it highlights for us the beauty of our justification, the beauty of the doctrine of justification, and we're going to define that in a minute. So whether you're a believer in here or you're not, this text has something to say to you. So let's pray to that end, and we're going to lean in together. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray that you would eliminate distractions. Lord, I just ask that you would be big in this place. Lord, that you would help us to see our own hypocrisy and our own unbelief and our own waywardness, Lord, and just allow you to call us out of that. Lord, we are so needy and broken apart from you, and so I just ask that you would move in our lives, Lord, move and call us to faith and repentance and belief this morning. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself. Uh, I'd ask that the Lord would help you see areas where you're not trusting him fully for, for faith and salvation, and that the Lord would reveal to you areas where you're walking in sin and walking in hypocrisy. Lord, I pray that you'd bring conviction where conviction is needed and encouragement where encouragement is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, the text will not be on the screen. So again, if you need... Oh, okay. I. I don't, think the, I don't think the slides are going to be right, though. So if we'll see. Uh, here we go, rolling the dice. Anyways, you should still use a Bible. That was the point I was going to make. So if you need a Bible, we can get you one. Uh, Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here we go. Paul is continuing in his defense of the gospel, and we have this tense and heated exchange between Peter and Paul. So we need a little context to see why this confrontation is taking place. So Peter is a Jewish Christian, which means he was born a Jew. In the Old Testament, a Jew was from the nation of Israel, chosen by God and set apart um, to represent him, to be blameless before him, to follow his commands. And so there's Peter, this Jewish Christian. And... They're in Antioch, and the church of Antioch is made up of predominantly Gentile believers. A Gentile is a non-Jew. Anybody that's not a Jew is a Gentile. And so initially, Peter goes to Antioch, and he's sitting down at the table with these Gentile Christians who we saw last week have been accepted into the family of God by faith in Jesus, not through circumcision as the Jewish law commanded. And so Peter was one of the leaders of the early church, and so his activity had just a tremendous amount of influence on the rest of the church's behavior and on the rest of the church's activity. And what we see is that the church was united in their acceptance of these Gentile Christians. Look, this is more significant than just like sitting down and sharing a meal with somebody. Table fellowship for the Jews was a sign of acceptance and a sign of approval. And so for centuries, the Jewish law required separation. Get away from these pagan Gentiles in order to show that you are people set apart by God and so that you will not be led astray by pagan Gentile idolatry. The Jews were not to associate with the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And so these relationships at their core are really tense to begin with. And what we see in the New Testament when Jesus instituted the new covenant at the Last Supper, and by the cross and by the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And so Peter... Knowing this was accepting the Gentiles as his brothers and sisters in Christ, at least for a time. You can flip back to Acts chapter 10 to see the beginnings of the shift in Peter's thinking and Peter's theology. I'm going to summarize that whole chapter for the sake of time. Peter's in his house. He's on his roof. He's praying, and he gets hungry, and then he has a vision, or if you're a Baptist, he has a dream, um, In his vision, a sheet comes down from heaven with all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles. And I mean, I know birds and reptiles are animals, but there are uh, mammals and reptiles and birds. And anyways, uh, science. Um, I know on this sheet, there has got to be a pig or two on the sheet. And God says, hey, Peter, rise, kill, get something to eat and enjoy yourself. Have yourself a pulled pork sandwich with some bacon jam on the side. Do it. It's delicious. You'll love it. Jews had very strict dietary laws, so they did not eat certain types of meat, certain types of food, um, and that included, included pigs. So if you want some more detailed descriptions on what they could and couldn't eat, you can go all the way back to Leviticus and read that. But God is now telling Peter to eat whatever he wanted. And Peter says, "No way, God. I've never eaten anything that was common or unclean." And then God says to Peter, Acts 10:15, and the voice came to him again a second time saying, "What God has made clean, do not call common." Peter comes out of his trance and he's confused by what just happened. And in the meantime, there's a Gentile Christian a few towns over. His name is Cornelius, and he's having visions of his own. And in his vision, God instructs him, get up and go, there is a man named Peter, go and call him. And so Peter and Cornelius meet together, and Peter sees this Gentile brother in Christ, and he rightly applies the instructions from God. He says to Cornelius, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter affirms Cornelius. Peter affirms Cornelius as a person made in the image of God and affirms that he is also a believer, that they are now brothers in God's family. The text tells us that Cornelius' household, which would be a good amount of people because Cornelius was a wealthy man, his whole household has gathered around this meeting between Peter and Cornelius. It's an all-Gentile crowd, mind you. And Peter then opens his mouth and proclaims the truth about Jesus to these Gentiles. And look what happens. Acts 10 verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from the circumcised, that is Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This is known as Gentile Pentecost. Many Gentiles were called into faith and salvation and baptized on this day. So Peter has seen and experienced firsthand the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. And because of his vision that he had and his experience with Cornelius, he went all in on table fellowship with Gentile believers. That wasn't until these Jewish men from the church in Jerusalem showed up. These men, our text says, they came from James. James is Jesus' brother, who was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. James did not send these guys, but they came from the church where James was the pastor. They were divisive people. You probably know the type if you've been in church for very long. They went on their own because they had their own agenda. They went not under the authority of the apostles or the church. We know this from Acts 15, uh, verse 24. It says, Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. When these guys show up, Peter completely caves under peer pressure. He completely retreats from his position as an apostle and the calling that God has clearly given him, and he stops eating with these Gentile believers. And the implications are that he even stops taking communion with them. And not only that, not only is Peter in the wrong, but because of the amount of influence that Peter had in this this church... All of the Jewish Christians started treating the Gentile believers like second-class Christians, and they all retreated. So not only was Peter wrong, he was setting a terrible example for the other believers. Man, this could be a a sermon on its own, but for our purposes this morning, um, I want to encourage you to be bold. Just speak the truth in love. Paul confronts Peter. Peter in his unbelief, in his his hypocrisy. And for Paul to not have said anything would not have been loving to Peter. It would not have been loving to Peter, and it would not have been loving to the other Jewish Christians. Proverbs tells us, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There's this thought in our culture that Christians are not supposed to be confrontational, like to confront someone means that we're judgmental. There is a way, Christians, that you confront people that is judgmental and you kind of come off as a jerk. You're like, don't do that. There's a way to come off that's not winsome and loving. But we are called to Speak the truth in love, especially in regards to confronting one another, especially in regards to confronting other Christians who are walking in sin. And the standard for what sin is is found in the Bible. And therefore, if one of our brothers or one of our sisters is walking in sin, according to the Scriptures, as our supreme authority, then we are to go and confront them in love. There is love, there is grace, There is mercy to one another when we confront each other lovingly and biblically. And we're actually identifying ourselves with Christ when we do so. Because Christ is the one who first loved and pursued wayward sinners in love and in grace and in mercy and called them back to to right relationship with himself. Listen, we don't need more passive Christians. We don't need people that just peace fake their way through life and through conflict. We need strong, faithful men and women whose desire is to glorify God and are willing to hold one another accountable. When Christians are walking in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin, God is not glorified. But when sinners repent, the Lord be praised. The Lord be praised in our lives which is the whole purpose of the christian walk that the lord gets glory so peter calls i'm sorry paul calls peter to the carpet in order to not lead him to guilt and shame and condemnation but to lead him to repentance in christ you see we are required it's not a suggestion it is a requirement to hold one another accountable When we don't, church, when we don't hold one another accountable, we are then servants of sin. We become complicit in sin. And God has called us to be our brother's keepers. We are not called to our own comforts. Right? This is not an easy practice. How many of you just like confrontation for confrontation's sake? This is not an easy practice, but we are called to holiness. We're called to holiness both personally and corporately to the Lord's good honor and praise and to the Lord's glory. So we pursue holiness both personally and corporately to the honor and praise of the Lord Jesus. That's the goal of church discipline. It's not meant to exclude and isolate. It's not meant to lead to, like, excommunication. But it's to bring about repentance and reconciliation. Peter is acting like a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is saying, I believe one thing, and doing something completely different. Marita says the implications of Peter's actions are that the Gentiles may not be fully acceptable before God. Verse 14, Paul says, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Let's stop right there. Peter and the others had deviated from the truth of the gospel. The right belief, wrong behavior type of person. You see, Peter was an apostle, he was one sent by God, and therefore he knew what the gospel says. And he would tell you he believed the gospel, but his actions did not reflect the gospel. And, church, if we're not careful, this can be true of us as well. There is so much in our culture, so much in our self reliant, self indulgent lifestyles that are not in line with the calling of God on our lives. We can claim to be a Christian. We can regurgitate some facts about God and Jesus. We can know all the right things to say, and that's where it ends. We can claim to be a Christian and neglect others. We can claim to be a Christian and neglect being involved in a local church with other believers like the scriptures call us to. We can claim to be a Christian and live in constant sexual immorality. We can claim to be a Christian and completely miss God. Paul says, verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, again that's Peter, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to then live like Jews? Paul confronts Peter in his radical inconsistency. R.C. Sproul says the inconsistency is that Peter is enjoying the freedom of the gospel and denying it to the Gentiles. Thankfully, praise be the Lord's mercy, we know from history that Peter does in fact repent. That is Jesus' goal and Paul's goal for this confrontation. And Peter does continue a long and fruitful gospel ministry. Christians, take note in here. If Peter can fall into sin, so can you. If Peter can fall into sin, so can we. Sin is so powerful, and when left unchecked, it will devour us. That is why we need people to love us the way that Paul loved Peter. That is why we push community so hard here. Because you need other believers to point out your blind spots and show you where you're not in step with the truth of the gospel message. That should both challenge us and encourage us. Man, we all need to be corrected And there is forgiveness available to us. Just as an aside, last week I alluded to some of the racial undertones that were at play here. These false teachers were using the scriptures to justify their own prejudices. And that is fundamentally wrong. And if that's you, may the Lord lead you to repentance. But there is certainly more at play in the book of Galatians than the social issues. The primary issue that Paul has been dealing with is what is this. What does God require for salvation? What does God require for salvation? So let's shift gears here and see why any of this matters up to this point. Paul is going to continue in his defense of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel message of Jesus. More specifically, how is a person saved? Is it by saying the right things? Or is it by doing the right things? Paul has addressed both of these types of people and has said, you guys are both wrong. So what's the deal here, Paul? Let's look. Uh, Verse 15. Again, the Old Testament chosen people of God, they were born into a promise. They were not pagans by birth. And yet, as Paul says, he says, we know this, Peter. We know that a person is not justified by obeying the law. We know this, Peter. We've been taught by Jesus himself. Peter, we know. We know that it's only through faith in Christ that leads to our justification. So we believe in this Jesus and we don't believe in our own merits. Because by obeying the law, no one will be justified. Paul introduces us for the first time in this letter to this beautiful doctrine. It's called the doctrine of justification. So here's what that means. If you're a note taker, get ready. Justification means to be justified. It's a legal term used in a court of law. That means a person who is declared justified is declared to be right. So justified means to be right. means you've given a right standing. In the biblical sense, justification means before God, I have a right standing. And for the Jews of the day, both then and now, They're trying to earn their way to God. They're trying to earn their salvation by obeying Old Testament laws. And Paul is saying, there is no way. There is no way to be justified by good works. There's no way to be justified by law-keeping. In our day, Paul would say, there is no way to be justified by your behavior. There is no way to be justified by rule following. There is no way you can be justified by your church attendance. There's no way you can be made right by being a good person. It's only through faith in Christ that you can be saved. But faith in Christ is more than just saying, I believe in Jesus. So many people in our Bible Belt, West Texas, churchianity culture will tell you this. I believe in Jesus. It's more than a verbal acknowledgement. It means you believe in Jesus. Yes, and your faith is in Jesus Christ's sacrifice to you, and your life has been changed by Jesus. It means that your justification, you believe in your justification by Christ's death. So let me explain what I mean. You cannot be justified, you cannot be made right by obeying the law. The law being the Old Testament rules and regulations for how you are to live. In our day, it could be defined as like moral living in an effort to be made right before God. In an effort to get to heaven. You cannot be justified by your morality. Because the demands of the law, the demands of God's law, are that you obey the law perfectly you keep it perfectly. You never mess up. You keep it to perfection. And here's some bad news for you. You can't do it. And even if you could, you wouldn't. Your unbelief prevents you from doing so. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't do it. The law commands that you never have a weak moment, you never have a bad thought about someone else, you never have a sexually impure thought or motive, you can never do anything wrong. The law demands perfection. And then we have the greatest commandment that says, the highest law is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do this and do it perfectly All the time, and you'll be okay. Here's some more bad news. You don't. You don't do it. You don't love God this way. Not even for one second of your life have you ever been able to do this. And this is sin. And sin is more than just missing the mark. When you don't love God fully, It is rebellion against the holy and righteous God. And when we break the law, even for a moment, even with one weak moment, the penalty against us is death. Our sin demands a payment, and this requires the payment of death. And God knew God knew that we would never keep his law perfectly, and so God himself came and lived the life we were supposed to live and kept the demands of the law perfectly. Jesus did what we could not do. And then Jesus went to the cross and died in our place. He died the death that we deserved. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God laid upon him what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the iniquity of us all. God laid upon Jesus all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our rebellion, and he transferred that to Jesus. And in turn... He saw Christ's righteousness, Christ's goodness, Christ's perfection, and he transferred that onto us if you are in Christian, if you are a believer. He transferred Christ's righteousness to us, making it as though we have never sinned ever. So now when our faith is in Christ for his work to us, for his righteousness, when God looks at those who are in Christ, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness that has been transferred to us. Christ then was buried and resurrected, and through the resurrection, we have assurance that God the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice for the sins of the church. God in Christ offers you forgiveness. And now, when Jesus has saved you, when God looks at us, He sees a justified person. He sees not a guilt-laden sinner. Christian, when God looks at you, he says, not guilty. Simply on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, we're made right. Not by anything we can do. Not by any merit found in us. Apart from Christ, you are guilty. You are a hell-bound sinner in need of rescue. And you can do nothing about it. And the reason that the doctrine of justification is so beautiful is because when you consider the depths of your sin, the fact that you can be saved at all should astound you and move you to worship and praise. We've been justified by Christ if we are in Christ. If our faith is in Christ for our salvation, our justification is not in ourselves. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares sinners righteous solely on the basis of faith through Christ. Verse 17. But in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. The false teachers have accused Paul of living like a pagan. Paul responds to their accusations. These false teachers, they're accusing Paul of making Jesus a servant of sin by not upholding the law with zeal like he previously did. They're saying Paul is not living how we think he's supposed to live. So he's in sin. This Gentile way of living is not a good look and not a good representation of Jesus. Paul isn't living good enough according to these false teachers. Paul then says in response, no one is justified by the law, because no one can keep the law perfectly. So a Christian then is not someone who never sins or has no sin, or doesn't feel any of the effects of sin personally. Rather, a Christian then is someone who has faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and therefore their sins don't count against them because Christ work in their life. A Christian is one who is grieved by sin, by their own sin, because we have been bought by the death of Christ. God himself sacrificed himself in our place, and our sins should grieve us. Does your sin grieve you? Does your sin grieve you? Or do you act like you have a license to do whatever you want? Does your sin grieve you or do you just act like God is supposed to forgive you so you go on living like God's got you? Like you have a license to sin. Listen, God hates sin and God will not tolerate sin. He hates sin so much that he punished his one and only begotten son. So Christ, the servant of sin... Absolutely not. Christ will not be a servant to sin. Elsewhere, Paul says, Romans 6, 1, Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Riken says that when God justifies sinners by faith, he is not aiding and abetting their sin. The very suggestion is blasphemous. God cannot sin, nor can he be held responsible for my sin. If I am a sinner, after I become a Christian, which I am, sinner saved by grace, it's no one's fault but my own. There is no hope, there is no life, there is no salvation, there is no security in following the rules for the sake of following the rules. What the law does, it like holds a mirror up to our face and shows us how utterly helpless and hopeless we are. Because we can never keep the law fully. We're too sinful to do so. So by rebuilding it, as Paul says, by trying to do enough to earn God's love, shows us that we're guilty of law-breaking by not living the perfect life that God has commanded. And our sin requires a payment. The law, good works, morality, it cannot save you. The law only condemns you because it proves to you just how sinful you are. Because of Christ, the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and we can be in right standing with God by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Paul said he has died to the law. What that means is that because of Christ, he has been made alive in Christ Jesus, and that the law no longer has any power on him. The law cannot provide life. It only leads to death. Therefore, through the law, one dies. For the believer, then, I'm wrapping it up. For the believer, the penalty of the law has been carried out through Jesus. The demands that the law put on us were met. God's wrath against sin and God's wrath against you has been paid for through Jesus. If you are a Christian, when God went to the cross, when Jesus went to the cross, your sinful self died with him. And in that death, in that death of the law, in that death to ourselves, we are made alive in Christ in order to live for Christ. Verse 20 and 21 of chapter 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul's reached the end of his defense of the gospel. He says, if there were any other way to be saved other than faith in Christ, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. It's by Jesus' death. It's the only way we can be saved. If Jesus' death isn't the only way for sinners to be saved, then the cross is emptied of its power, and we are still hopeless and helpless. Because by our sinful selves, we cannot do it on our own. man. But these two verses give us our identity. It's not through good works, but through the cross. Ourselves have been crucified with Christ, and now, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we get to live for Christ. Our lives are not our own. They belong to Him by faith in the Son of God. This Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, once and for all, for the sins of humanity and for our salvation. We are called out of darkness and into light, and therefore we get to live for him. Our good works, then, the reason we love the body of Christ and the reason we pursue mission locally and beyond, is not so that God will love us anymore, Because it's impossible, Christian, hear this, it's impossible for God to love you anymore, as is demonstrated by the cross. But we practice good works because 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. That's it. The gospel has not called you to earn. It has called you to love because we have been loved greatly. The central issue of the entire book of Galatians is that the gospel, the way a person gets to be saved, is by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith in Christ plus nothing else. But why? Why would God do this? God has done this for his glory and for his good and pleasing will. And that will and that glory is found in his love for his bride, the church. Our sin its no longer meant to lead us to guilt or to shame or to condemnation, but our sin ought to drive us to the great mercy of Jesus. He has seen your sin. He knows your sin. He knows your future sins, and he is still pleased to call you his own Christian. If you're not a believer... If you're not a believer in Jesus, what justification teaches us is that there is forgiveness even for you. Even with everything you've done and everything you will do and everything you struggle with, Jesus went to the cross, motivated by his great love for you. God's pleasure towards you is not based on your performance. Some of you need to hear that. God's pleasure towards you is not based on your performance. You don't need good works to please God. You don't need perfect behavior to please God. He is pleased with you because of his good work to the cross, on the cross, for you. Christ Jesus went to the cross because he cares about you, because he loves you, and because he is passionate about you and passionate about the glory of the Lord. If you are in Christ, all of the benefits of God to Christ the Son now belong to you. You have love from a Father. You have your eternity secure. You can rest and delight in Christ who is your joy. If you aren't in Christ, the offer of this love, this freedom, this forgiveness is available to you. You don't have to earn his love by morality because it has been earned for you on the cross. The invitation isn't to try harder, but to rest in the fact that Christ offers you his forgiveness by his grace. There's unmerited favor of God richly poured out for you on the cross. We are saved by Christ's grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Perhaps we all just need to examine our own lives here in this moment. Is there any evidence in your life that you are in fact a believer? If not, pray. Pray and ask the Lord to reveal any areas of unbelief to you, any sin in your life. Perhaps you need to bring this to your community group and confess that. The Lord Jesus loves you and promises to not forsake you and promises to draw near to you. So draw near to him. The invitation for you this morning is to confess your neediness to God. Maybe for the first time. You need to ask God to save you. You need to confess that you've tried to save yourself and you can't. And you need his work in your heart to save you. So church, cry out to God. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to save you.
1: Ask him to make you new this morning. Let's pray.